You're now listening to episode 95 of the Real Estate CPA Podcast. Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Brandon Hall and Thomas Costelli here today with Jay Scott, entrepreneur, real estate investor, and co-host of the Bigger Pockets Business Podcast. He has also wrote several books on investing, including Recession Proof Real Estate Investing, a book that helps investors understand how to prepare and invest through the various stages of an economic cycle. This is an especially important book given the times we're facing in the advent of this COVID-19 crisis. In today's episode, we discuss what Jay is doing to prepare his business for the months ahead, where he believes the economy is heading as a result of the COVID-19 crisis, upcoming opportunities for investors and entrepreneurs, and a lot more. We hope everyone is at home and taking the necessary steps to stay safe as COVID-19 continues to impact the nation. The Real Estate CPA has created a Slack community for real estate investors to share ideas on how to protect their businesses and real estate investments, as well as stay up to date on all the various laws and best practices as the coronavirus crisis progresses. The community has already grown to over 500 members in the last few days, and some amazing discussions are already taking place. We invite all of our podcast listeners to join the community. The link will be in the show notes below, but you can also join by visiting www.cashflowcommunity.slack.com. Again, that's www.cashflowcommunity.slack.com. Again, the link will be in the show notes. We look forward to seeing you in the community. But for right now, we'll jump right into today's episode. Jay, thanks for taking the time to come on the show today. For our listeners who may not have heard your story or didn't listen to the first appearance you had on the Real Estate CPA podcast back on episode 38, would you be able to give us a brief overview of your background? Yeah, sure. So real quick, um, started out in the corporate world. I was an engineer and MBA by trade or by education, I should say. I worked in the corporate world for a long time, met my wife back in 2006 in Silicon Valley. Uh, 2008, we decided to get married and start a family. So uh, we quit our jobs, moved back east, and we're looking for something, kind of a, a lifestyle business to start so we could kind of spend time with our families, but also continue to make money. And somehow or another, we fell into real estate investing. Um, actually, not a very interesting story. It just kind of happened. And since 2008, we have flipped about 400 houses and we've done rentals, multifamily, lending. Uh, notes, a little bit of everything over the last uh, 10 or 12 years. So we do a lot of real estate investing, but own a couple businesses as well. So I actually enjoy the business side of investing more than the actual hands-on investing side or the real estate side. And yeah, that's kind of us. We kind of have our hands in a whole lot of things. And uh, these are these are interesting times to be doing a lot of the stuff. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And you know, it's it's been a while since the first appearance. And I think when you first originally came on, we were at the top of the cycle. We were probably in the peak phase, as as your book would suggest. And now there's a lot of uncertainty, obviously, you know, over the, what's going to be coming up in the in the coming months and years. 
Uh, and it appears that we would be heading into a recession. But where do you believe we're headed? Yeah, I, I think um, so. I kind of use, I, I've put together a whole bunch of metaphors to kind of get my head around what's going on now. But my personal view is right now, we're just kind of in a, you kind of have to discount everything that's going on right now. Um, there's a whole bunch of crazy stuff. I mean, if you look at the economic numbers, uh, you'll see this is, we're recording this on Thursday and, and early uh, unemployment numbers were just released. Another 6.6, I think, million unemployment claims filings for this week. And um, But nobody really thinks that once the lockdown is over, we're going to be at 15 or 20 or 25 million unemployed. We could be there in the meantime, like during this lockdown phase, GDP could hit negative 10 or 12 or 15% unemployment could hit negative 15 or 20%. But nobody really thinks that's kind of the steady state of, of a reflection of where our economy is. I mean, our economy heading into this event, I thought there were some issues, but we we're still relatively strong. And so I think when all of this is said and done, we kind of get out of the lockdown. I think we're going to see a big rebound on GDP. We're going to see a big rebound on unemployment numbers. We're going to see a big rebound on a whole bunch of economic indicators, and we're going to find ourselves in some steady state position. And I think it's not going to be anywhere near as bad as what today's numbers look like. But it's also not going to be, in my opinion, this is all my opinion, it's also not going to be anywhere near as good as where we looked last summer or last fall. I think we're going to find ourselves settling in somewhere around six, seven, eight, nine, ten percent unemployment. We're going to settle in somewhere around flat GDP growth, maybe a little positive or a little negative. Um, we're going to settle in at there's going to be some demand side constraints, meaning people aren't going to be spending a ton of money. There could be some supply side constraints, which means like it's difficult to get products and raw material and inventory from some of our trading partners. There are going to be a bunch of issues. And if I had to guess, and again, this is just a guess, even if I were an economist, I'm not. Even if I were, we're all just making guesses at this point. But if I had to guess, I would say that come this summer, we kind of fall in to a kind of a steady state somewhere in typical recessionary numbers. What the economic data is going to look like once we hit a steady state is going to be something that looks a lot like a typical recession, maybe what we saw in 2001 or what we saw in the early 90s. Not 2008 bad, but certainly not 2017-18 good. Great opinion um, of where we're going. And I, I would just say that uh, I think right now there's a lot of panic that just took place. And I mean, we had one of the largest drops in the stock market, I think 30, over 30% since the Great Depression. And I feel like just from, from my opinion, that's just largely just the panic that's setting in rather than actual like, you know, what's actually going to happen. But um, what have you done to insulate yourself and your businesses, your investments during this time? Yeah, so we kind of, I don't want to say we predicted this, certainly nobody could predict what happened. Um, but we saw some cracks in the economy. We saw some, some softening indicators last year. So last year, leading up to this, we did a bunch of things. We sold off a bunch of our investments that we didn't want to hold for five years. Basically, we, we, we went through an audit and we said, is this an investment that we want to hold for five years? Yes or no? If the answer was no, we sold it off. Um, we moved a lot to cash because our take was if there was a downturn, if there was a recession, typically speaking, cash is king. There are some good opportunities out there, but oftentimes lending tightens up. And so having access to cash is, is generally a, a huge competitive advantage during a downturn. 
Um, we made sure that any any loans that we had, any leverage that we had against our properties was longer term. So anything that was coming due in the next year or two or three, we refinanced or we paid off and basically got rid of the loans. We didn't want any loans coming due in the next year or two or three. While interest rates are fantastic, again, lending starts to tighten. Lenders may not have the appetite to lend like they did last year or a couple of years ago. Sometimes you're going to see heftier fees on the front end. Sometimes you're going to see uh, higher requirements for capital reserves, things like that. So we didn't want to be in a position where in a year or two or three, any of our loans were coming due and we were at a point where it would be difficult to refinance. Other than that, we basically went into opportunistic mode. So we started looking for great deals. We slowed down our flips considerably. We slowed down our note investing considerably. We slowed down our lending considerably. Uh, if great deals came along, we didn't pass them up, but we weren't out there basically saying, hey, we have to be doing deals. We were okay with kind of sitting on the sidelines to see what was going to happen. Now that we're in the midst of this, we're very much in, in the same frame of mind. We're being very opportunistic. We're not doing many deals these days. We had uh, uh, two multifamily deals that we, we got. Our offers accepted last month, uh, about 450 units that we would have loved to have done. But unfortunately, we just determined that the market wasn't at a point where we were comfortable putting that many eggs in that basket. We've slowed down on our flips. We're basically only buying those deals that are so good that if the market dropped 20% or 30%, we'd still be comfortable with them. Um, we're basically only doing buy and hold deals if the numbers are so good that, uh, that we could see a, a drop in market rents and an increase in vacancy and they'd still be good deals, those sorts of things. So right now, we're, I kind of think of this period as February when this whole thing started, we kind of went to sleep. And at some point in May or hopefully May, but maybe June, when it's all over, we kind of wake up and everything that kind of happened in the middle, I'm just going to pretend was kind of a dream and, and wasn't real life. Um, because a lot of what we're seeing right now is not, not, I mean, it's real life, obviously. A lot of people are struggling. It's not good. But from an investment standpoint, you can't trust any of the numbers you're seeing. You can't really trust the deals that are out there. I, I, I hear people talking about the fact that in some markets, prices are still going up. I hear about in other markets, prices are, are dropping considerably because there's not a lot of demand. And you can't really trust any of those numbers because right now we don't have what we would call an efficient market. There are supply constraints, there are demand constraints, people are kind of not acting rationally. So whatever you see out there right now is, is not what is typically considered an efficient market. And when you don't have an efficient market, you can't really look at, at prices and say those are realistic values. I've seen a lot of people, a lot of real estate investors on social media, especially at the beginning of this, as the stock market was tanking, kind of like talking about, hey, you know, this is why I own real estate because it's so stable and uh, real estate's the best asset class and things like that. And, you know, I think that April rents so far across the board have been pretty rock solid. I mean, and it makes sense, right? Most of the tenants got paid through March. They got their tax refunds and they have cash to pay rent. I think that the big question mark, at least for our firm internally, is what's going to happen in May and June and how is that going to affect all of the landlords out there? What are your thoughts on that? How, how stable is real estate with something like this? And or do we even know? Is it, is it going to lag six months before we actually even know how it affects real estate? Typically, real estate's a, a lagging indicator in general. What I mean by that is typically the economy moves and real estate follows. We talk about like 2008 a lot, and 2008 was a real estate-led downturn. 
there were systemic foundational issues in, in, in the real estate industry, in the, in the lending industry that kind of crashed the whole economy. But people that were paying attention before 2008, and if you look at the history before 2008, that's actually a very, very rare occurrence. Pretty much every other recession in the history of this country, and there's been 30-some going back 160 or 70 years, pretty much every other recession has been driven by some other factor, not real estate or lending crashing. Um, it's been driven in the 70s. We saw oil issues in the late 80s. We saw savings and loan crisis. And in the late 90s, we saw the, uh, the tech bubble burst and we saw 9-11 in, in early 2000s. So, it, and going back all the way to the Great Depression, I mean, the Great Depression was driven by tariffs and it was driven by debt and it was driven by some other things. Very rarely do we see recessions driven by real estate. Generally, what we see is recessions driven by some other factor. Maybe it's a bubble bursting. Maybe it's just systemic issues in, in certain industries or sectors. And within a few months after the, the market or the, the economy starts to go down, people start to get impacted in ways that impact real estate. People lose their jobs, so they can't pay their mortgages. People see their wages cut, so they can't afford as much in terms of real estate. Um, people can't pay their rents, and so rents start to go down. People start moving out of houses into rental properties, so values start to drop. And so these are things that aren't systemic real estate issues. The real estate market could be perfectly solid leading into that economic event, but just the fact that people are losing jobs, they're losing hours, they're losing wages, that rolls over and starts to hurt the real estate market. Typically speaking, it's about a three-month lag. So typically speaking, the, the economy gets hit. Three months later, we start to see those effects roll into real estate. So the fact that we haven't seen that yet is not surprising. And it may be a couple months before real estate takes a hit. Who knows? Maybe real estate won't take a hit. There have actually been several recessions over the last 160 years where real estate hasn't taken much of a hit. I mean, if you go back to um, 2001, 2001, I mean, certainly real estate took a hit in certain markets, but there are a lot of markets that were pretty well insulated. Again, we remember 2008 because it was so recent and it was so drastic, but 2008 isn't necessarily the prototypical recession and certainly not for real estate. So we don't know how it's going to affect real estate, but certainly the fact that real estate hasn't been tremendously affected as of yet shouldn't be surprising. So I've been reading reports relatively recently within the past week or so about all of these banks preparing for just incredible influxes of foreclosures or potential foreclosures on the horizon. I don't know if you've seen anything about that, but if you have, do you, do you have any thoughts on that? So it's funny, I haven't. So it's not clear to me, and I'm certainly not disputing anything you've read. I think uh, they, the bank certainly would know more than I would, but I haven't seen any indication that we're getting ready to snowball yet, that what's going on in the economy. Like I said to Tom just a, a few minutes ago, I think where we're going to hit steady state is going to be, it's going to be somewhere in typical recession numbers. That's short term. That's this summer, maybe this fall. But I think the bigger question is, where are we going to be after that? So is it going to be a typical recession that lasts 12 to 18 months, and then by 2021, we're kind of out of it and we're into the next expansion? Or is it going to be a typical recession that something bad happens and the next phase is much worse? So is it a recession that's going to improve like a typical one does, or does it, is it going to go down? And from my perspective, there are three things that are kind of going to decide whether what we see next, this what I 
and confident it'll say to, to call a typical recession is going to lead into something better or something worse. And those three things are first, there were several systemic issues in the economy leading up to this event. And I know a lot of people look back to last year and say everything was great. And if you look at unemployment, if you look at the stock market, if those are your two indicators, yeah, everything looked great last year. Everything's looked great for the last 10 years. But there are a lot more indicators out there besides unemployment and the stock market. And if you look at a lot of those, what you see is there's been some softening over the last couple of years. There's been some cracks. There have been some things that basically put our economy at risk. So if any of those things kind of run into major issues, and we can talk about what those are if you want, but if any of those things kind of run into major issues over the next six or 12 months, I think that could hurt the economy. Number two, our government over the next six months, I think it's safe to say is going to throw a whole lot of money at this problem. And this isn't a partisan statement or anything, but the current administration, they want to get reelected. And the best way for them to get reelected is to go into November with a really strong economy. The best way for them to do that right now is to basically throw the kitchen sink at the economy to, to release as much money as necessary into the economy to keep things strong. Now, I think that's a good thing. I think we need that to some extent right now. But the problem is if they throw too much too quickly without enough oversight and thought, it risks breaking things. It risks certain unintended consequences, for lack of a better term, that could break a whole bunch of things that we have no idea are, are going to break. So that's the number two risk. Number three risk is lots of talk. I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not a scientist. But if you, if you talk to a lot of these scientists, what they're going to tell you is this lockdown may not be the final lockdown. We may see a second wave, hopefully not as bad as this, but we may see a second wave of the virus that kind of starts to hit the community and we may see more lockdowns. We may see people that aren't comfortable coming out of lockdown just yet, and that's going to impact the economy. So between the, the economic factors that were leading into this crisis, between the new things that are going to be created by throwing all this money at the, uh, at the problem, and between the potential ramifications of, of future lockdown rounds, I think there's a whole lot of things there that could potentially turn the next phase, the typical recession, into something much, much worse. Will it necessarily happen? Can't say that for sure. Um, but I think there's a big risk. It's like this weird new normal that we're all going to have to adapt to and get used to. And you can call it a recession, and but it's just like, it's just, I think it's just going to be so weird to... Uh, to see how this plays out, because I think that you're right. I think from what I understand, and again, I'm not a scientist nor a doctor or anything close, but the folks that I've talked to, their thought is that, hey, until we have any sort of vaccination, you can kind of expect for these like lockdowns to continue to happen in different waves, kind of like you mentioned on number three there. But on number two, you know, the, the unintended consequences. So I know that when you expand the money supply rapidly, you get inflation. And I don't think that a lot of people know what inflation necessarily means or how it's even going to impact them. So I guess if I'm a typical consumer, you know, does that mean that my $10 buys me less milk? Or if I'm a real estate investor, is this a really good thing for me? Yeah. So it's, there's, there's never any one answer. And it's always how you look at it and what your perspective is. From the consumer standpoint, it's exactly what you said. Typically, inflation means, depending on, on what definition you want, um, uh, what a lot of people use is the price of stuff goes up. 
That's inflation. In reality, it's the value of the currency that's buying that stuff is going down. But either way you look at it, inflation basically means consumers can't buy as much stuff. And the reason that releasing trillions of dollars into the economy does that is the goal of those trillions of dollars is to give people money to spend. It gives people the ability to go out and buy more cars and buy more houses and buy more toothpaste and buy more toilet paper, whatever they want to buy. Now, when people are buying a whole lot more of stuff, businesses need to keep up with that demand. And the way businesses keep up with that demand is they build more factories, they buy more inventory, they hire more people, they buy more equipment, and all those things cost money. So when there's tremendous demand out there for stuff, when the economy is really booming, businesses will spend a lot of money to keep up. But they're not just going to eat that cost. They're going to pass that cost on. So when the economy is booming and businesses are expanding, they're passing the cost of that expansion on to their customers. And the way they pass that on is they, they increase the prices of their goods. So when things are really, really good, the downside of that is that prices tend to be going up. And when you release trillions of dollars into the economy, you're basically saying, here's a whole bunch of money to spend to make the economy really strong. But the downside is inflation. The other big risk I see for inflation right now is that everybody knows that there's a, a lot of blowback on China right now. A lot of people who are saying, hey, we're way too reliant on China for a lot of these things. The big example is China controls about 80% of our medicine. Uh, we import about 80% of our medicine. That's something that wasn't talked about before. But now that people realize that, hey, China controls these things and we can't necessarily be as reliant on them for really important stuff like technology and medicine and stuff like that, I could foresee a situation where moving forward, a lot of people, including in the government and consumers say, hey, we need to move away from China. We need to start manufacturing more stuff in the US. We need to start manufacturing more stuff in Mexico or Canada or whatever it is. That's great. I, I have no issue with that. But here's the problem. The reason we like China is because things are really, really cheap. They have full control over their people and they can say, we're going to pay you $5 a week or $20 a week. And so we get stuff really cheap out of China. The minute we say we're going to start making all that stuff in the US, well, we have minimum wage laws here in the US and we have health coverage that we have to pay our employees. So that thing that costs $5 to make in China might cost $20 to make in the US. So if we really want to take on that, and I'll use the term burden, maybe it's burden, maybe it's not, but if we really want to take on the burden of manufacturing everything we use here in the US, we have to be prepared for the fact that it's going to cost more to produce. And that means the suppliers, the businesses that are making these things are going to have to charge more for them. So instead of getting your, your TV, your 65-inch TV from Costco for $300, well, now your 65-inch TV from Costco might cost $1,500. That's the trade-off. So that, that's the risk I see with inflation over the next couple of years. So there's a lot of uh, clients who asked me recently, uh, you know, should I be buying gold? And of course, we don't give investment or financial advice. But do you see there being the potential with all this for like runaway hyperinflation? Or is that too severe of a, of a thing to happen in this juncture? So I, I guess that gets into the second part of Brandon's question that I, I accidentally ignored. First of all, please don't anybody assume anything I'm saying means anything more than anybody else out there that's randomly guessing. Again, I'm not an economist, but even if I were an economist, any economist you talk to is basically just guessing at what might or might not happen. 
So we hear the term hyperinflation a lot. Basically, that's the, the runaway inflation where the price of milk goes from $2 a gallon to $20 a gallon, and the price of a house goes from 500000 to $5 million. Basically, the value of the currency drops so much that everything costs 10 or 20 or 100 or 1,000 times more. And we've certainly seen that in other countries. Uh, do I think it's a possibility here? It's always a possibility. I mean, in the next 200 years, I mean, just historically speaking, there are going to be a whole lot of bad things that happen in this country because every economy has its ups, it has its downs. Whether it's a short-term risk of hyperinflation, I seriously doubt it, simply because our government is not going to allow it to happen easily. It would have to happen without anybody wanting it to happen. It'd have to happen with, with our government and a whole bunch of other governments, frankly, because the U.S. has what's referred to as the world's reserve currency. The U.S. dollar is kind of the main currency in the world. People trade with dollars. A lot of countries out there own a lot of debt that's based on the dollar. So if the dollar were to fail, if we were to see hyperinflation in this country, it's not just our country that would suffer. There are a whole bunch of countries around the world that would suffer as well. So I think we would see a rally around our currency if, if we ever saw a risk to hyperinflation. So I think that's not a tremendous risk, but we could still see a good bit of inflation. It doesn't have to be the price of milk goes to $50 a gallon. Even if the price of milk goes from $2 to $4 a gallon, that's huge. There are a lot of people out there that are barely making ends meet. And if they have to pay twice as much for their milk, twice as much for their toothpaste, twice as much for their car payments, that's going to be a hard pill to swallow. So the risk to inflation is certainly there. The risk to hyperinflation, I'm not betting on it. Now, to the question of what do we do if we do see this, this inflation? What are some good hedges? And when I use the term hedge, I mean, what are some good strategies to kind of mitigate the risk of inflation? The big one is buying assets. Typically speaking, if the price of milk is going to go from $2 to $4, well, the value of that $2 has now been cut in half. But if you actually own the milk, the value of the milk has gone up twice. And milk is an asset, so or it's, it's at least a physical thing. And so the physical stuff, while the price of it might go up, the value of it goes up as much. If you're selling to your neighbor a gallon of milk, when milk is up to $4 a gallon, you're making $4. The currency is worth half as much, but the product, the physical asset is still worth the same. And so that's why a lot of people say, buy gold or buy physical assets, because typically speaking, a lot of physical assets will go up in value as inflation increases while the currency is going down. Don't hold dollars. Don't hold things that are tied to the dollar because they go down, but the actual physical products go up. Now, in terms of real estate, there are two good reasons to own real estate when we see inflation. The first is, again, when the value of the dollar goes down, the, the asset goes up. If we see inflation and the, the price of milk doubles and the price of a TV doubles, well, most likely the price of housing is going to double as well. Likewise, people are probably going to make twice as much money at their jobs. So if you own real estate, while again, the value of the dollar is dropping, the value of physical goods are going up and real estate's typically going to keep pace with that. So if, if inflation doubles the price of everything, it's also going to double the price of your house. So you're somewhat mitigated, you're somewhat hedged. The second piece is from the lending side. So probably the single best thing you can do if you think there's going to be inflation is to get loans. So let's take a, a typical situation. Let's say you have a job. At your job, you make $50,000 a year. Let's say you're going to buy a house and your house is going to cost $250,000. You want to get a loan for $200,000 of that two hundred and fifty. dollars 
So you now have a loan on your house for $200,000. You're making $50,000 a year. Basically, it's four years of salary to pay off that loan. If you took every penny, there was no taxes, four years of salary to pay off that loan. Let's say now we have massive inflation and everything goes up four times. So the price of your house goes up to $2 million. The price of a gallon of milk goes up to $8. Price of a gallon of gas goes up to $8. Well, most likely, your wages are going to go up as well to cover that. So instead of making $50,000 a year, if we have this massive inflation where everything goes up four times, you're now probably making $200,000 a year so that you can keep paying for this stuff. The value of the dollar is worth less, but you're making more. So in this case, for this example, you're now making $200,000 a year. How much is that loan on your your house that you took out? It's still $200,000. It doesn't go up four times. You don't suddenly now owe $800,000. You still owe $200,000. So what this loan that was four times your salary just a few months ago is now just one year's worth of salary. You can pay off this loan in one year's worth of salary. So loans, when there's inflation, is the single best hedge against that inflation because as the price of things go up, your salary goes up, everything goes up except for the value of your loan. That stays the same. So it's much easier to pay that off. So the reason people like real estate during inflationary periods, the reason people buy real estate as a quote-unquote hedge against inflation is those two reasons. Real estate's going to go up in value with inflation, and paying off loans is going to get much, much easier if we see inflation. Something that I've always struggled wrapping my mind around with the concept of inflation is, okay, if I have a $100,000 home and it increases to $200,000, I can sell that $200,000 home. And on paper, it looks pretty good. But to replace that $200,000 home, I have to now buy another $200,000 home. So is, it, is investing in real estate then, and let's assume that we're not using leverage because that, that was a great example and that makes perfect sense. But investing in real estate without leverage, without factoring in leverage, is that just to make sure that your dollars don't deteriorate in value. Exactly. Yeah. So inflation isn't going to make you money. Real estate isn't going to make you money during inflationary periods. It's going to protect your money. It's a way to protect your wealth. So instead of your money being cut in half, the value of your money being cut in half, it's going to be worth just as much. Right, right. And I think that you can you can even dial it back down to the uh, the milk example, right? You can sell the milk for $4, but then you have to go to the store and buy milk for $4. So you don't actually get ahead. I mean, if you're producing the milk, that's a different story. But yeah, and inflation is a very interesting concept. Now, you mentioned the reserve status. And I was hoping that you're going to bring this up because I've been reading some of Ray Dalio's stuff recently. And he's talking about the rise and fall of empires and, and economies. And He's referenced a few times that he's concerned that the U.S. might lose its reserve status at some point. And he's, he's referenced this with, with multiple examples in the past of empires that have risen and fallen. What does that mean exactly? What, what does reserve status even mean? You, you briefly explained it. But then what does it also mean if the U.S. loses reserve status? So basically, reserve status, again, means that our currency is kind of the standard currency in the world. It's the currency that people choose to trade with. So right now, uh, China, if they're doing deals with, let's say, Russia, just to to bring up an example, um, historically, they would have done a lot of those deals in U.S. dollars. They could use the Chinese yen. They could use the the Russian... uh, I think it's a ruby, right? Ruby, ru- ruble. Thank you. Um, but they don't. Typically, they'll use dollars. 
just because dollars tend to stand up in value. Everybody's comfortable using them. It's just, it's the reserve currency of the world. As Ray Dalio points out, and anybody that doesn't read Ray Dalio or watch his stuff, I highly, highly, highly recommend it. He's got a very balanced view. He's probably a little bit bearish right now, but there are a lot of people who are bearish. But unlike some of the big names out there who I feel like they have an agenda, I feel like Ray Dalio is pretty well balanced and and he puts his money where his mouth is. He's got a big fund. Um, As Ray Dalio likes to point out, a typical reserve currency, a typical currency that kind of is the most important currency in the world lasts for about 200 years. And if you go back about a millennial, last thousand years, We've had, I think, four or five reserve currencies. So, so 200 years is a pretty common benchmark for how long a typical reserve currency lasts. How long have we had the, the US dollar? That's been a reserve currency for about 150 to 200 years at this point. So just again, I would never say that history is necessarily going to tell us what's going to happen in the future, but it's the best indicator we have. So if you look at history, it basically tells us US as a reserve currency uh, we could be in our heyday. We could be on, on the downside. Now, you couple that, not just the timing of it, but you couple that with there are a lot of countries out there that don't necessarily like the U.S. right now. And I just talked to an example about China and Russia. They typically trade in U.S. dollars. I use that example very specifically because there was an announcement a couple months ago that China and Russia have moved away from the U.S. dollar for their trade. They're basically going with other currencies to do their trade. And so when other countries decide to move away, and they could do it for a bunch of reasons, it could be purely political, it could be a strategic thing, just to put pressure on on our dollar. It could be that they're losing faith in the dollar for some reason. It could be that there's some advantage to using another currency, whatever it is, when people stop using a currency... That's what makes it stop being a reserve currency. You you can't go and and go on Wikipedia and it says, okay, some organization has dictated that the dollar is a reserve currency. It's just, it's it's one of those things. It's like, who's the biggest acting superstar in the world? It's just an opinion. And we might all agree that it's X or Y or Z, but one day when that person falls out of favor, well, they're gone. And it's, it's nobody making that decision. It's just our general opinion. Same with reserve currencies. When China and Japan and Russia and Mexico and Canada, whoever it is, decides eh, we're no longer interested in the dollar, they start using something else. And now suddenly the dollar is no longer the reserve currency. And so the risk there is that the fact that the US dollar is the reserve currency, that means when the government, the US government wants to raise money, they issue bonds. And bonds are basically just IOUs. And they say, hey, give us a bunch of money, take our IOU, we're going to pay you interest every year. And people clamor to buy U.S. bonds, to buy these IOUs, because everybody wants to own U.S. dollars. It's the safest place on the planet to put your money. But the day that the U.S. dollar is no longer the reserve currency, it's no longer the safest place on the planet to put your money, and people are going to start putting their money somewhere else. And at that point, it's going to be really hard for the U.S. to raise money. It's going to be really hard for us to do trade. The value of the dollar might fall, which is going to affect the cost of imports and exports. A lot of negative things happen when you lose that reserve currency. The fact that there are a bunch of countries around the world right now that aren't thrilled with the U.S. or that are might be concerned. We, we talked again about the risk of throwing all these trillions of dollars at our economy. We throw all these trillions of dollars at our economy. If other countries look at our economy and say, oh, that economy is at risk of inflation, that economy is at risk of whatever because they're printing so much money, we don't trust the U.S. dollar anymore. Suddenly, that whole thing snowballs and, and we have a lot of problems. 
Yeah, you know, you know, something I've been thinking about with everything that you had just kind of said there is um, it is really a power struggle, right, between the East and the West. I don't know how you would describe that, but between like China and the BRIC nations or whatever and, and the United States. And I could see there, I mean, I don't want to make any crazy predictions or anything like that, but I've been really thinking lately, it's been sitting on me like, what if there's a major shift coming in the next few years, like a major war between these nations and a battle for all this stuff? And um, yeah, not to go off a tangent, but do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I mean, there's already a war from a financial standpoint. I mean, there's been a trade war and we've been talking about that for years. And I think we we kind of think about it as we, we compartmentalize it. We're like, okay, this whole trade war with China, yeah, that affects our farmers. Maybe things at Walmart are a little bit more expensive, but ultimately, yeah, it's not really a war. And, and everybody is at the end of the day is going to come together and everybody's going to be happy. And, and maybe it'll be a hundred billion here or a hundred billion there that transfers hands. And it's not a big deal. But I think what people don't realize is it's a real war. And if you really dug in and you saw the risk to China, what China sees is the risk to their economy. If they lose this war, they're not willing to just give up and they're not willing to just say, okay, um, you win. Um, They're going to fight and they're going to fight and they're going to fight. And part of what they're doing to fight is they're organizing with other nations. They're organizing with local trading partners. So they're organizing with other, other trading partners in the East. They're organizing with Russia. They're even organizing with Canada and Mexico and, and starting to do more trade with Canada and Mexico. And this is China's way of saying, hey, look, We've had a really symbiotic relationship with the U.S. for a really long time, but we see a risk to that relationship. We're not just going to give up and roll over and die. We're going to do whatever we can to protect our country and our economy. And what they're willing to do, what it seems like they're willing to do, could be seriously uh, a risk to our economy. I mean, the day China decides, okay, fine, you want to impose tariffs? We're not going to export to you anymore. You want your medicines? Go start making your medicines in your own country and and pay three times as much. Go start making your electronics in some other country and pay three times as much. Um, China owns a a decent amount. I've heard anywhere from 75 to 90% of the rare earth elements. They mine the rare earth elements out of their own mines. And these are the elements that go into electronic components that without these things, you can't manufacture electronic components. So if China really wanted to screw us, they could say, We're not going to export these rare earth elements and we're not going to sell you electronics. So go build your own computer chips, go build your own hard drives. And at the same time, they could say, China owns a a trillion dollars of our debt. They could decide, "Eh, we don't want to buy your debt anymore. In fact, we're going to sell your debt. And if they start selling off our debt, they start to play with our interest rates. They start to play with our bond rates. They could do a lot of things if they felt that they were really threatened by this trade war, if they were willing to destroy their own economy to destroy ours, and I'm not saying they will be, but if they get to some desperate point where they're willing to destroy their economy to destroy ours, they actually have a lot of leverage and they could do that. Yeah, it's some scary stuff. And I guess we'll ultimately have to see what the future holds in store. And yeah, I guess turning back to something a little bit more brighter, I guess you could say this is brighter. I I know in one of the Facebook posts you had made recently, it was addressed to entrepreneurs and you believe there's going to be a significant opportunity for entrepreneurs to capture a bunch of small businesses, whether that's through acquisitions or just filling the void where some small businesses did not make it through this, this crisis. And just wanted to see if you could speak to that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So we looked at 2008 and 2008 was a real estate crisis. It was a lending crisis. And 
we saw the major chaos in the real estate industry. I mean, foreclosures were at, at a high point in history. People were losing their housing and it was as bad as it was for the economy, as bad as it was for families who were losing their houses and their livelihoods. It also presented opportunities. And I don't make light of the fact that people struggle during these things. But if you look at it from an investor standpoint, there are opportunities when other people struggle. And 2008, we saw what, and I'll I'll use a cliche term, but like one of the largest transfers of wealth in history to those who could take advantage of the real estate property opportunity. People bought up trillions of dollars worth of property at, at very low prices. And those that had the forethought to basically make that investment have made a tremendous amount of money over the last 10 years. And I talk to every day, I talk to people who say, darn it, I wish back in 2008, I would have recognized that opportunity. And I wish I would have not been scared to buy and I would have gone out and bought real estate. And I say it myself. I mean, we flipped a couple hundred houses between 2008 and 2011. And I still wish we would have done 10 times as much. I wish we would have bought a whole lot more buy and hold. And there were a lot of people who realized they missed an opportunity in 2008. I know a lot of those people are looking forward to that opportunity here in 2020, potentially. And will it come? I don't know. I don't know if we're going to see a real estate downturn. If we do, I don't know how big it's going to be. Is it going to be 2008 or is it going to be nothing? I have no idea. But one thing I will say is that there is going to be an opportunity in 2020 and 2021 and 2022 for businesses, especially for small businesses. So during this lockdown, there are going to be a whole bunch of people, a whole bunch of business owners that likely aren't going to recover. Now, I know we think like in a couple months, like everything's going to be back to normal. We have enough money coming from the government to prop up all these businesses. A lot of people think, yeah, we're going to be just fine. Everything's going to recover. But here's some things to think about. There are a whole bunch of business owners out there before this crisis happened that were thinking that they were struggling. They weren't necessarily making ends meet. And I've been in that situation myself where I've had a business that wasn't really doing well, but I wasn't ready to give up. Um, I felt like I had sunk so much time, so much energy, so much money into it that I was willing to just keep going and going and going, even when I knew intellectually that it probably wasn't a smart thing to do. There are millions of those business owners right now who are probably ready to throw in the towel, but just didn't want to give up. Well, this event is going to drive them to that decision. Okay, now's a perfect time to give up. I couldn't have predicted this. I can't get through this. And now's the the kind of the excuse I need to just get out of my business. So there are going to be millions of business owners that are just going to give up because they've been waiting to give up anyway. And this just gave them the incentive to do that. Then there are going to be a lot of business owners that just can't make it that just don't have the money, they don't have the, the wherewithal, they don't have the, the psychological fortitude to keep going. They say, I'm just going to go back and get a job because this is not what I signed up for and this is not fun and I don't want to have to go through this again. And they're just going to give up their businesses. Then there's another group of people who are in their 50s, 60s, 70s, have owned a business for a long time and they were saying, I'm getting pretty close to retirement. I want to sell off my business or I want to close my business. And now with this happening, they're like, well, I'm 65 years old. I don't feel like starting over. I was planning to retire in a couple of years anyway. I'm just going to retire now. So between those three categories of people, there are a lot of businesses out there that are just never, ever, ever going to reopen, which means there's a whole lot of employees out there, by the way, that are going to, not going to have a job to go back to. And this is why I think we're going to see 6, 7, 8, 9, 10% unemployment after all this. But with all those businesses kind of closing down, 
This provides a tremendous opportunity for anybody that wants to be a business entrepreneur. This provides an opportunity. That means there's going to be a gap in supply. That means there's going to be a lot of industries where, let's say the restaurant industry, if 20% of restaurants don't reopen and you believe that the restaurant industry was a pretty robust place three months ago, well, now there's there's a whole lot of opportunity for people that want to fill that 20% gap. And so if you're willing to kind of fill that gap, if you're willing to take a risk from the business side of things, there are going to be a lot of owners that are looking to sell their businesses. There are going to be a lot of owners and people don't realize this, but businesses are a lot like real estate. There are going to be a lot of very motivated sellers out there. There are going to be business owners who say, look, I don't care about me. I'm going to shut my business down. I'm going to go live off my retirement. I'm going to get a job or whatever it is, but I don't want to have to fire all my employees. And so I'll sell you, I'll basically give you my business if you come in and you just maintain some continuity. You just don't fire the employees. You keep my name on the door and I'll basically give you my business. There are a lot of business owners that are going to be willing to do that. I've already talked to a couple. There are going to be other business owners that are basically, oh, you're going to pay me $10,000 a year for the next 10 years. I'll owner finance my business to you. There's going to be a lot of tremendous business opportunities over the next couple of years. So anybody that's kind of willing to jump in and look for a business or or start buying businesses or taking over businesses, I think 2020 to 2023 is going to be for business what 2008 to 2011 was for real estate. Yeah, I I like what you said about the psychological impact. You know, I, I don't think that a lot of people really truly understand how hard it is to be a business owner and especially if you were already struggling or if you weren't and you built something great and it collapses as a result of this, I think it's really difficult on the back end, even if the economy does come screaming back, which I know a lot of people say is going to happen, but I'm a little wary about. I think it's going to be a little bit a little bit slower than people people think it is. But even if it does, you you as a business owner, you're kind of building from scratch if you've been shut down for months. You've got to rebrand, remarket, rebuild rehire. And that's tough. That's really tough. And I've been talking about this with people too. And I saw I saw the same Facebook post that Tom referenced that you built out kind of talking about this. And I was like, Oh, man, Jay's thinking about the exact same thing that I'm thinking about. And I think that I was thinking about it just because I'm sitting here looking at my own business and I'm stressed. And I'm going, man, I built this great big thing. And if it collapses, I don't know, man, is <laughs> am I cut out for it? Like this is just it's a tough it's a tough thing. Like I've gone through years and years and years of just stress, constant stress, constant work. But there's a ton of other small businesses out there. So if you have the skills and the ability to go in and, and buy them up or take them over, then not only can you build your wealth, but you can also do a great service to the current employees that that you don't have to fire and also the surrounding communities. But I guess my question to you, Jay, is how do you identify these opportunities? How do you plug yourself into these networks so that you you can even open your eyes to this world. So again, I always like to go back to business investing is very analogous to real estate. And um, the way you find acquisitions, the way you do acquisitions and and find deals in, in business is, again, very analogous to real estate. So how do we find real estate deals? One, we can go on market. We can look in the public locations where where real estate is sold. And so for real estate, that's the MLS and that's auctions and other things like that. Well, we have the equivalent. We have the analogous thing in the business world. So there are business brokers out there. And there's there's an equivalent to the MLS in the business world. There's a business MLS. In fact, I'm in Florida and 
If you get a real estate broker license in Florida, you actually are also licensed to be a business broker. And there are a couple of states that are like that. But basically, a business broker is just like a real estate broker or a real estate agent. They have access to these public sources of deals. So call a business broker and say, hey, I'm looking for a certain type of business. And we can talk about like what type of business you might want to look for. But call a business broker and say, I'm on the market to buy a business. And they can go on their online MLS, their equivalent to the MLS, and they can tell you like what businesses are out there and they can provide you the information for those businesses. And they can get you on a feed so that if one of those businesses becomes available whenever in the future, you'll get notified that that business is available. So that's the public source. Then again, what's the other way to buy real estate in, in when you're looking for, for real estate deals? Off-market. And plenty of off-market ways to find real estate. You can do direct mail. You can do cold calling. You can just walk into... You can knock on somebody's door. Um, you can do radio advertising. A whole bunch of ways to buy off-market real estate. Well, same with businesses. I know people that literally drive down the street and they see a business and, and they just drive in and they say, hey, can I talk to the owner? They talk to the owner and, and they just build a relationship and maybe that owner is willing to sell. You can do direct mail. You can send out mailers that basically say, hey, I'm looking for X type of business in this area. Just like you would say, I'm looking for a house in your neighborhood. If you have any interest in selling or talk about selling, let me know. And I know people that get businesses doing that. And the other way is just networking. Just go to places. I mean, we go to, to real estate investor association meetings, and that's how we talk to other investors and we meet other investors and we do deals at those places. Well, go to chamber of commerce events, go to other places where business owners hang out and you're going to start building these relationships and you're going to hear through the grapevine, oh, my buddy Joe is, is owns a, an auto mechanic shop and he's been looking to sell. You're on the market for an auto mechanic uh, a, a garage? Great. Here, let me hook you up with him. So just like in real estate, there's on market and off market, and it's just pounding the pavement and finding deals. Same way in the business world. And you mentioned the types of businesses, which I would love to just briefly chat about too, or, or ask you what your thoughts are. You know, the way that I think about it is you can buy businesses that are in industries with strong fundamentals, or you can buy businesses where your skills will directly add value to the business. It's, it's very similar to real estate, right? Like real estate's got a bunch of different asset classes. Just because one person crushes it in multifamily doesn't necessarily mean that the next person can crush it in multifamily. Yep. So what, what are your thoughts on that? What are you kind of seeing as potential, um, I guess, sectors or industry opportunities to pay attention to? Yeah. And just like real estate, uh, I can give my opinion, but that doesn't mean I might like fixing and flipping single family houses, but that doesn't mean that's right for everybody. You might prefer to lend or you might prefer to do value add apartments or you might prefer to do mobile home parks or whatever it is. So in the business world, for me, some of the things I look for, um, I really like service industries. Um, I've done the product thing and I'm not cut out for the product thing. I don't have a passion for the, the marketing and sales channels for, for products. I like service industries. I feel like that's a competitive advantage for me. I really like businesses that are recession resistant, especially over the last year. I, a few months ago, started a fire water mold remediation business. So it's basically um, your house floods or your house burns down. We come in and we handle the emergency and then we we go and we do the rebuild afterwards and, and we get paid by the insurance company. So it's highly recession resistant. Even during a recession, people are going to have their houses flood and burn down and the insurance companies are going to continue to pay. So I like recession resistant businesses. I like small businesses. I like businesses that I'm not paying 
large in, in, in the real estate world, we use cap rates. I'm not paying a whole lot of money for not a lot of value. I want to buy businesses for basically their asset value. So I want to go in and buy a business where the furniture and the equipment and everything, let's say that's worth $50,000. I want to buy the business for that $50,000 because that reduces my risk. Basically, I can sell off the equipment and still be made whole even if I don't succeed with the business. Now, I know a lot of people say, well, how are you going to buy a business for the equipment cost? Why would anybody sell their business for what the equipment's worth? Well, it's the same question in real estate. Why would somebody sell their house for below market value when they can just hand it to a real estate agent and sell it because they have a problem that they're trying to solve. They either want to retire, they had a death in the family, they are distressed in some other way financially, they're looking to relocate. Same reason people are desperate to sell real estate and are willing to sell it for far below value. People want to sell businesses for the same reason. So that there, there's that. I have my wife and I co-host a podcast called the um, the Bigger Pockets Business Podcast, where we talk to business owners and experts and talk all about these sorts of things. But the day this airs, go check out the Bigger Pockets Business Podcast. We have an investor on his his name is uh, Nigel Geisinger, and he talks all about his niche for buying businesses, which is he looks for businesses where the business owns the real estate that the business is housed on. So basically, he goes in and he buys these businesses that own the underlying real estate. So now he has two assets. He has the real estate and the business. He can build up the business, sell off the business and keep the real estate. And basically, now he's got an income stream. Whoever he sells the business to is now paying rent on the real estate that sits under it. And he continues to make money on the real estate. And he talks about, he gives an example of how basically he negotiated one of these where he got a 90% SBA loan for the business and then negotiated owner financing for all the land underneath. So he bought a $1.8 million business and property for $50,000 out of pocket. And now he has two assets and he's built that business up from a $500,000 business to a $9 million business. He's ready to sell the business off. He's going to keep the underlying land forever. So there are lots of strategies and just like in real estate, you have to pick the one that most resonates with you, that most fits with your personality, that most fits with your skill set. But there are a lot of businesses out there. You want to own a restaurant, now's a great time. You want to own a service business. I personally like businesses that kind of have some synergy. So I flip houses, I buy rentals, I'm in the real estate world. So I started a remediation business because I have relationships with property managers and insurance agents and real estate agents. And if I go into a property management company and they say, oh, Jay Scott, yeah, I've read your book. I'm like, well, great. I own a remediation business. If any of your properties get mold or have a flood, please call me. Oh, yeah, I'd love to do business with you. And right now we're in the process of, of negotiating for a granite and marble business because we can use that in our industry. I can go into other people I know and they're like, oh, Jay Scott, yeah, I'd love to work with you. So that builds on my, that builds on, on my name, that builds on my experience and my background. So I'm looking for a bunch of different businesses in the construction industry because they can all play together and it builds on, on the reputation I have. For somebody else, you might like cars, go buy a garage, go buy a used car dealer. You might like restaurants. Well, now may be a great time to go open a restaurant. Um, you want to start a product business? Well, you can probably get inventory pretty cheap pretty soon when, when China is, is, is desperate to, to start exporting again. Um, there are a lot of opportunities and what's right for me isn't necessarily right for everybody else. Figure out what's right for you. 
No, absolutely. And love what you said. I think uh, just to make one quick comment on that, when I was, uh, I did a quick stint in recruiting a few years ago and I was recruiting for some family businesses and you see a lot of these empires being built, you know, around a core business. And then you have like spokes around it, if you will, of the, all these ancillary businesses that are all feeding off of this core business. Um, and that sometimes is a reputation of one or more of the family members. So I just thought that was, uh, something to point out there, but, uh, excellent strategy. And we're kind of running over time here. I uh, just wanted to thank you for coming on the show today, taking the time out Ed, to have this conversation with us, especially amongst this crisis. Uh, what is the best way for our listeners to learn more about you and what you have going on? Yeah, absolutely. So check out the podcast, Bigger Pockets Business Podcast. I, my website is jscott.com. I'm on Facebook, jscott investor. So uh, investor. So I post a lot on Facebook about the economy. So if you're interested, follow me there. And my email is the letter J at jscott.com. Feel free to shoot me an email. Absolutely. All right. So we'll drop those links in the show notes below for everybody who is listening. And I do follow Jay Scott on Facebook. A lot of great posts that have been coming out recently. So uh, we'll drop that link in the show notes below as well. And thanks again, Jay, for coming on. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. If you haven't already heard, the IRS has moved both the individual tax filing deadline and the payment deadline to July 15th, 2020 to help combat the impact of the coronavirus and as many professional tax preparers and firms have been disrupted. Luckily, as a virtual CPA firm, the Real Estate CPA has been able to maintain operations with little disruptions. If your tax preparer has been affected and you're eager to have your tax returns prepared and filed to receive your refund, we may be able to help. Visit www.therealestatecpa.com slash become-client to fill out a brief web form and we'll discuss how we may be able to help you achieve that goal. Stay safe out there and thank you for listening to The Real Estate CPA Podcast. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.